You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Aaron. I'm one of the hosts of this show, but I'm also the host of another show, and that show is called Stoner. And when we haven't sold a pre-roll sponsorship, they allow me to talk about it at the front of this program. They, Max Linsky, a.k.a. they, allow me to talk about it. It's a show about creative, productive people and their relationship to marijuana. If you are curious Maybe you live in a legalization state and you'd like to hear about the experiences of other people who are getting into that weed world. Check it out. Just put in Stoner wherever you get podcasts. Here's, really the, sh- good. here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I am here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hi. Hello. Who's on the podcast this week, Max? Kate Fagan who writes for ESPN and is on the TV on ESPN a lot. And she has written a book. It's called uh, What Made Maddie Run. It's about a uh, college athlete who took her own life. And uh, Kate herself was a college basketball player. And uh, we had a really interesting conversation about the book and also about sports writing and covering like the Philadelphia 76ers as a woman and uh, it was great. Kate was fantastic. And that book started as a piece. Yeah, it was a uh, ESPNW piece I think and uh, she got this just insane, incredible outpouring of reaction to that story which is what prompted her to go do the book and she got really close with the family and it's just uh, it is a really amazing story. If you're sending an outpouring of email, maybe you need to uh, get yourself a MailChimp account they make it very easy to send out email, whether you're a, a business or you're a, a creative project. Wait, it is almost Labor Day, the annual holiday in which uh, MailChimp sends <laughs> you two to Georgia to the Decatur Book Festival. Every year, it's amazing. This first is, annual. Yeah, this is the first time, but I can guarantee you it is going to be fantastic. Evan and I are bringing a whole group of some of our favorite authors to Decatur. And if you're near Decatur, you should come. Come out and say hi. Yeah. Thanks to MailChimp for that, and uh, thanks for sponsoring the show also. Make this whole thing possible. And now here's Max with Kate Fagan. Hey, Kate Fagan. Hi, Max. What's up? Uh, Nothing much. What is up with you? I am hanging out here with you, and I wrote a book. Yeah. And it's summer. Yeah. And I'm just 
chilling with you. That's pretty much it. Well, that is cool. I want to talk to you about this book, but I thought that maybe we could spend a little time talking about other things because you and I know each other a little bit, but I, I realized that I uh, don't actually know that much about you. Okay. Here's the thing I do know. You were like a incredible college basketball player. Incredible is a stretch, but I appreciate that. You hold some records at the University of Colorado, do you not? Free throw records. <laughs> Let's be clear. That's the part of the game where it's like there's not action happening. You don't have to be quick. You don't have to jump high. Like everyone else can't move. So that's why I'm good at those. But yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't incredible. But now I guess since it was 15 years ago, we can say it was incredible. It was above average. Great. It was above average. <laughs> I was pretty good. I played. I started. I scored some points. Were you writing then? I was. I did an online blog for cubuffs.com called The Fagan Files. And I have not read them since, although I did get in trouble for one of them. I actually, it's kind of, it's kind of serious, actually, but I'll tell you the story anyway. I'm, I'm good with serious. So I would write one a week of these, like, quote unquote, Fagan files. And one week, CU was traveling to play at Cal. And so we were in Berkeley and the bus was driving through Berkeley. And the whole point of the Fagan files, I, well, I can't believe it quote-unquote Fagan Files, was to capture the behind-the-scenes of the team. And so it wasn't about the game. It wasn't a breakdown of the game. It was traveling on the road, the hotel, the bus. So we're driving on the bus through Berkeley, and Berkeley being a progressive place, there was a lot of folks on the street. Some of them were wearing, like, what we would call cross-dressing, right? Like, And I, being from upstate New York, this was very different for me, even though I was living in Boulder. And I wrote this Fagan Files, and I used language that just wasn't appropriate. And I was like, we saw some crazy, wacky people. And then I described them, and it was a huge blowback from, like, the trans community. This is not, like, a funny story, but, like, here I am, 21-year-old, writing for the Fagan Files. And I was like, that was the first time I learned, like, the power of, like, the choice of each word. I was more deliberate with my word choices after that. I'm sort of surprised, with no offense, that anyone was reading the Fagan Files. <laughs> well, it so happened that a trans woman covered our team. There was like three local papers that covered the team and one of and the beat writers for one of those papers was a trans woman. And so she would read the quote unquote Fagan files because she liked to know the team better. And that was like a good inside access. Right. So she she was the one who like pointed it out to me, pointed it out to like our staff and like I had to have a sit down meeting about it. Did she write about it? I can't remember. What was that conversation like when you sat down with her? Well, it was it was hard because you can imagine this would have been 2001, 2002. I'm a college student. Like the easiest place to live is just to not be as open to people who are different from you, especially when you're in my case like a student athlete and so I'm living in this very cultured world of like bigger, faster, stronger. And now there's like a trans woman covering our team. The easiest place for me to like revert back to would have been like, who cares, right? Calm down. But I, I do believe that she was so open to me and just wanted me to learn that the meeting wasn't contentious. Mm -hmm. The meeting was simply, hey, this is why those words could be hurtful to people who, you know, who may be different than you. And this is why those words perpetuate. And it, like, I never thought of these things before, like blew my mind. Were you out then? At that point, no. It was like a year later that I realized that I was gay. Huh. So, and plus it doesn't even matter because I'm sure I would have been even more defensive and even more like those people are strange. And now I'm using quotes because I wanted to differentiate myself and distance myself. Right. I mean, that was like, a uh, you wrote about this in a memoir, but that was like a real tension on that team was you were trying to figure out like your own sexuality and there were a bunch of like 
evangelicals on your team. Yes. And- yeah. So my first book was the story of me coming out when my team just happened to have a lot of born again Christians on it. It was not a Christian college. It was University of Colorado. It was the number one party school. We just happened to have like six or seven recruits who came from more fundamentalist backgrounds and they just got together on the team and started having Bible studies. So now looking back on it, like that was not the experience I expected when I went to like the University of Colorado. I thought it'd be like smoking some dope and skiing. Not really. I was playing basketball, but I thought it would be a little more free flowing. Mm -hmm. And here I am like having conversations about identity and born again Christians and it's quite intense, and I was a good free throw shooter as well. So one of the best. <laughs> yes, of maybe 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 the best in school maybe, history. Definitely, it was me and Chauncey Billups, just like <laughs> neck and neck. And so, how did the Fagan Files happen? Like, wh- I'm trying to understand what what <laughs> we what... took a detour here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm interested in what role writing was playing in your life. Then, like, you were a really serious college athlete. You went and played professional basketball afterwards, and I'm interested in what role like writing was playing in your life and and what your aspirations for basketball were then and what your aspirations for writing were then? Well, I had wanted to be a writer ever since Sports Illustrated put the UConn women's basketball team on their cover. And I think it was 94, 95. And you would have been like, what, like a freshman in high school then? Yeah. Yeah. And this was unprecedented that Sports Illustrated would have a women's basketball team on the cover. And I remember reading the story that accompanied that cover. And it was one of those stories where it was like the lead and the kicker like tied together perfectly like, you know, writers try to do. And I came downstairs with the magazine and my I remember my mom was washing dishes and I held up the magazine and I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated one day. That was the first time I was like, I'm going to write. That doesn't mean that I then pursued it. Like I didn't then major in English. It was just like, I kind of want to do that, but basketball was always on the front burner. So much so that I chose Colorado based solely on basketball. Didn't care at all about my major. So writing was just always something where I was like, I'm going to do that someday, but I wasn't actively getting better at it. And then the sports information director at the University of Colorado asked me somewhere along the way if I wanted to write the Fagan Files because they all knew that I wanted to be a writer because I would like on the road, sometimes I would write little short stories. I mean, they knew that I would spend some time working on writing. That was generally speaking what I wanted to do. So that's why they came to me with asking me to do the Fagan Files. Plus I'm super funny. And they were like, this is going to be so funny. And how did it evolve? Like when did basketball go to the back burner and writing go to the front burner? Well, when I graduated from Colorado, I really had trouble letting go of basketball And not because I loved it so much, but simply because I had put the 10,000 plus hours in and I was borderline WNBA, not quite good enough, but still one of the top like 500 players in the country. And even though I knew I didn't want to keep playing, I didn't want to move to the bottom rung on the ladder. So I was like, I'm just going to keep playing because it's what I know and I don't want to go make $12,000 a year working really hard and being bad at something again. So I went and played in Ireland, not known for its basketball prowess, but I was like, this is a good in-between as opposed to a lot of women's basketball players who go to far-flung places, and it's really difficult for them. So I I played in Ireland. I came home after about three or four months. I played semi-pro in Colorado in Fort Collins for a league that was running opposite the WNBA, and that's when I started freelancing. So I was playing semi-pro, and I started freelancing for the Boulder Daily Camera, which was the main newspaper that covered CU and it covered a lot of like high schools in the Denver area. 
And you had just known those people because they'd been covering you when you were playing? Yeah, like the columnist for that paper. And we actually had a beat writer as well. So I just asked them, like, did they have any availability to start stringing for them? And they would give me, like, one high school football game a week. You said earlier that uh, you didn't want to be, like, uh, back at the bottom rung of the ladder. Yeah, and then I was. And then you were. <laughs> like, So what, what was that like? How, like... After putting in your, you know, Gladwellian like 10,000 hours shooting free throws, how did you approach sports writing and how did it feel to be uh, like on the other side of it? What ended up happening was that so in order to pay rent, I was freelancing and I was giving like individual lessons for basketball. And it didn't feel so bad being on the bottom rung again because I noticed that when I would go to give individual lessons, so it would be like a parent would pay me you know, 50 bucks to teach their kid basketball for an hour. I hated it so much that being at the bottom rung of like going to a high school football game and trying to keep yardage, which is very challenging, it didn't feel hard anymore. It felt like a very, a very quick shift in perspective. I could see myself dreading pulling up to the basketball court to teach basketball. And I could feel myself enjoying the process of learning how to cover games, how to structure stories that I didn't mind that it was like, getting paid 40 bucks for a story to cover like class d football in random places in colorado like that felt now like i had once felt when i was like trying to put the ball through my legs the first time was it hard to go to sporting events and not be the show no it was blissful why because i can remember times at colorado games practices where my teammates and i would just be like we can't wait for that time when we're normal people not having to deal sometimes with the anxiety of having to perform, whether it's a game or before a long practice or even during like a recruiting weekend. At times it felt overwhelming and you just wanted to be the people laying on the blanket on the quad. And so when I started covering sports, I didn't have that thing where I was desperate to be out there again. And certainly sports can be exhilarating when you you play well and your team wins. But for me, I don't know that that was ever my passion. And so more of the energy that I felt was like an anxiety over doing something that I liked, but it wasn't, I didn't love it. And then I found that writing and structuring stories was something that I adored. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second to tell you a little bit about our friends at HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients, thus the name, measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. And they've got uh, dietitians, two of them, full-time, registered dietitians on staff, who review each recipe to ensure that it is nutritionally balanced. That means you're going to get food that tastes great and makes you feel great. I can attest to that fact, for I have been eating HelloFresh. They've got these light summer meals right now that are just fresh and easy and uh, make you feel great. So go try HelloFresh. They've got delicious ingredients you'll love to eat, simple recipes you'll live to cook, and you can get it all for less than 10 bucks a meal. Here is how to do so. Go to HelloFresh.com and enter the code LONGFORM30. That's HelloFresh.com and the code LONGFORM30. You'll get 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries. Again, that's HelloFresh.com. The code is LONGFORM30 for 30 bucks off your first week of deliveries. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Kate. (laughs) 
were you worried about being good? Or was it like purely fun just trying to get better? Yeah, because I didn't, I hadn't studied it. I didn't know any of the language around it. I mean, I didn't know what a lead was probably until like two years in. Because when you're freelancing, it's not like the editor's taking you under their wing. They're just like, file the story. You know, it's like a 400 word gamer that and they have eight of them, you know, in their Saturday roundup. So I actually had no anxiety around it because I didn't know anything. You know, it's not like I was like watching great writers and like, I don't live up to it. It was like I was in my little bubble and like, I thought what I was doing was great and I had no mirror to show me that like, it wasn't. It really wasn't until I got to my second or third like full-time newspaper and I was working with someone who had gone to Columbia J School and they knew a lot of that stuff. It was like two to three years in. That was when I started to have some anxiety because now you understand how to be better <laughs> and you understand what being better looks like and then you want to live up to something. What are the other stops on the like Kate Fagan train between yeah. Stringing Colorado and ESPN? So Stringing Colorado... I very quickly, after about three months of that, I was like, I don't want to play basketball anymore because I was like semi-playing basketball, semi-doing that. I'm like, I want to be a full-time writer. So I think I put out like maybe 100 resumes across the country to every newspaper. I mean, I sent one to like ESPN The Mag, and I was like, look, I don't know if you have a job, but I'm pretty great. Stuff that now- Check out these gamers. Yeah, check out these 400-word gamers about Class D football. I'm ready. Uh, But now I realize that's ridiculous, but at the time, you're just like, what do you have to lose? So I sent one to openings that I had no shot at and then ones that were like 7,000 papers in small towns. And I actually got a job pretty quickly at the Ellensburg Daily Record, which is a small rodeo town in eastern Washington state. There was one sports person. I was the sports editor. And it was the greatest experience ever. I basically could cover anything I wanted. I would go to Seattle and cover the Mariners on my day off because I could get a pass. And But then I also had to cover like the key high school games, Central Washington football. I had to paginate. I had to lay out the paper. I had to like pick photos. That was the first stop. Then I went to the Glens Falls Post-Star, which actually had a, it has a really great reputation allowing writers to do some long form as well as covering the high school scene up there. And then from there... I got the job at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and at the time it wasn't covering the Sixers, but like within two months I was covering the Sixers. When you were in Central Washington, like you you got this job, you're figuring out how to put out a section of a newspaper. It sounds like basically on your own. How ambitious were you? Oh, I was ambitious because I was in my head. I was like, "What's the minimum amount of time I can stay here?" <laughs> and everybody I talked to was like one year. I ended up staying there nine months. Really? Yeah, because I was like, once I'd been there about three to four months, and I felt like I understood what I was doing, I was like, next step time. So ambitious Kate Fagan <laughs> moving through the ranks of America's mid-sized newspapers. That's right. And then you land in Philadelphia, and within two months, you are covering the Philadelphia 76ers. What was that experience like? Daunting. I was always someone who, when there was an opening, regardless of the opening, I thought I could get it. A lot of my coworkers along the way, like mid-sized papers, were baffled that I was applying to like the Seattle Times Mariners beat job. They were like, there's no way you can get that. And I'm like, says who? Like, who knows? So I took the interview at the Inquirer. And I know for a fact that like, even though I didn't have a ton of experience, like the fact that I was a woman who had played Division One basketball and then professional basketball was really appealing to editors. Because whatever I didn't know about the big newspaper process, like, I knew about basketball. So they didn't hire me at the Inquirer to be the Sixers beat writer because they wanted, I'm assuming they wanted to hire me at, like, the high school rate, not, like, the professional beat rate. But I didn't care. I was like, I will work for free because you're the Philadelphia Inquirer. 
this is great. So I get down there, and then within two months, I'm the Sixers beat writer. And once the Knicks got bad in, like, 2001, I didn't watch the NBA. I hadn't watched the NBA from, like, 2001 to when I got this job in, like, 2008. And a lot had changed then. Like, there was, like, lockout strikes. CBA was different when you're a beat writer. Like, those are important facts to understand. Right. I didn't even know that when a team traded someone, they needed to take back equal value. Like, I was just – I was out there with no information. And my first day on the Sixers beat, it was July of 2008, and it was like the opening of free agency. And that was the day they signed Elton Brand. That was when he came from the Clippers to the Sixers. All-time terrible signing. Yeah, pretty bad. Well, yes, all-time terrible signing. Trading, maybe Bynum was like the worst trade that the Sixers had made in a while. But yes, the Elton Brand deal was a bad one. Like, who could have known? I mean, he'd only torn his Achilles. I mean, Sixers. Okay, that's a separate podcast. But that first day, my editors, they certainly understand that I'm not, I haven't been covering this beat for years, I'm new, but there's still pressure to like do something to try and report this. I ended up figuring out that I knew Elton Brand's high school coach from Poughkeepsie through like two people. So I'm like texting my friend, I'm like, can you get the Poughkeepsie high school coach's name? And then can you get his phone number? And then I call him, but who knows if Elton Brand is like talking to his high school coach. He had been. I mean, I didn't break this story, but I was able to put out, like, a competent story that didn't rely on, like, too much on other people's reporting. So that was, like, my first day on the job. When you were traveling with the team and, and, and covering it on that level, like, how many other women would you encounter in that role? Not many. There was, like, a columnist here and there. Like, I ran into Jackie Mack a couple times, Jackie McMullen, who's, like, all-time greatest human. But she wasn't a beat writer. She would just kind of swoop in and do things here and there. I don't remember there being any other female, like, beat writer for newspapers traveling. There was certainly always, like, Dee Lynham was the sideline reporter for, you know, Comcast, which broadcast Sixers games. And you'd o- there'd always be women around because they would be a lot of times, like, sideline reporters. But there weren't a lot of beat writers. And I didn't really have an experience where I was like, this is weird that I'm in a locker room because I'd grown up playing pickup with my dad. I mean, I was almost always the only woman on a court until I was like 17. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't even asking really about the locker room. I meant more like just like I wonder whether being a woman was uh, how it affected the way that like the other reporters treated you. For the most part, it seemed like they thought I was like a strange anomaly because I'd played college. It was just unlike anything they I think they dealt with before, especially in Philly, which can I adore Philly. It's a very provincial place and like people who work in that media there have stayed there for years. I think I was a bit of an anomaly. I don't think they knew how to interact with me because I didn't want to like go out for drinks with them. Like I didn't do the normal Philly media things. So those interactions were always challenging. Why didn't you do the normal Philly media things? Truthfully, because I was gay and I wasn't out yet. And I just didn't do personal things with anyone because I didn't want anyone to ask me. Honestly, I was like, if I go out to drinks, there's going to be like that weird moment where they're like, well, are you seeing anyone? You know, because they always talk with their families and their kids. And then what was I going to say? So that was actually driving a lot of it. And it actually, I mean, it helped. It didn't help me emotionally, but it helped me in terms of being very focused on like, I'm here to kick ass at my job. I started like you know, it was called Deep Sixer, a blog, and I would write like thousand word posts after every game because I wasn't going out for drinks. So it helped me to some degree, though. It was it stunted me in terms of like developing 
lasting friendships and relationships with people along the way. Was it a lonely time? Oh, yeah. From the time I left for Ellensburg until I got to ESPN, I didn't tell anybody professionally that I was gay, which seems like it shouldn't matter. But imagine closing off half of yourself and not really doing anything outside of work anywhere along the way. And that was helpful, like I said, because I was always like I was at extra time to work. But I also feel like I missed a lot of opportunities to build friendships that I should have now. Like I should be able to say, oh, my God, I'm grabbing a drink with like my old buddy from the Washington paper. I don't have that. You're just not in touch with those folks. I stayed in touch a little bit with the editor there, but it's hard to have the drive to stay in touch with someone, whether from my end or someone else's end, when like you never really got to know them. Right. It's like you weren't totally there. Right. So it's not like, oh, we got to have Kate over. It's like, who's like, who was Kate? Right. Like she just came in, she worked really hard, and then she left. What changed when you got to ESPN? I had an interaction with an editor. I was at ESPN the magazine when it was here in New York, and one of the editors, really high up, coming out of a meeting we were talking about women's basketball, pitching a story, and she jokingly made something like, ah, women's basketball, just a bunch of lesbians. And then she said, and I can say that because I am one. I am one. And I was like, oh my God, did she just say out loud in this meeting that she's gay and she still works here and she's higher up and everybody thinks it's like fine and cool? It was really eye-opening because I came from the world of women's basketball where like there are no out coaches I don't know how it is now. This, I mean, this is 15 years ago. Like, head coaches don't talk about it. Like, the whole MO in women's college basketball was like, don't ask, don't tell. And so then to be in this meeting where someone was just openly and thought it was really cool that they were gay, I just told myself maybe I need to trust a little bit more. And I think it would make me a better, like, reporter and writer, too. And I think that ended up being true. Had you been seeing people that whole time and just, like, keeping it a secret? Yes, I would keep it secret from like my professional world because I thought I had just adopted the mentality that it would hurt me professionally. So my friends and family would know if I was seeing someone. And if that person came to visit me, I think I probably just like didn't introduce them to anyone or we would go places where I knew people wouldn't be. Was that assumption of yours? Was that like reinforced professionally or do you think it was just like a holdover from the culture of college basketball? Holdover. It was totally a holdover from like growing up, culture of college basketball. My college experience was like a lot of reinforcement that like they truly believed they would be fired if they came out to the athletic department. And even though I wasn't in an athletic department world, the structure of a boss not being supportive and you not getting your next job because you were out, I took that logic with me going forward that even if a boss said it was like okay it's fine I would never get the next job because then people would know oh do you know do you know and this is crazy now I think it's crazy now anyway like do you know Kate's gay yeah like let's just not hire her that really was the way it was in women's college basketball and I just carried that logic with me until it slapped me in the face that it was like my own paranoia living that I was living so what happened after that moment with the editor at ESPN I started trying to normalize it in conversation I started trying to look for my moments where I was like, speaking of gay, that's me. <laughs> I mean, I tried to look for moments where I could say, hey, Kate, do you want to go out tonight? I'm like, oh, actually, my girlfriend and I are doing this if I couldn't. And I searched those moments out and I tried to say that language. And at first it was really challenging and I would be nervous in the moment before I'd say it. But then I would like try and say it. Nobody cared. And then it started to be the time in the sports world where like 
Brendan Iamadejo, who's a Baltimore Ravens, he started standing up for LGBT rights. Chris Cluey, the punter, who's very outspoken about a lot of issues, he started talking about LGBT rights. It started to become, and this would be around 2010, 2011, where the sports world was really having to look itself in the mirror about how it interacted with the LGBT community. And the magazine asked me if I would write a column about anything about it that I wanted, anything to do with like where I thought this was going, why I thought it mattered. And I took that as an opportunity to like write it in first person, mm -hmm. just to establish like why I'm talking about this issue and why maybe you should listen to me. And so once I put it in like print and it felt fine, and then it became, oh, hey, like Michael Sam is coming out. Let's get the gay chick and put her on TV. <laughs> like it became the opposite of what my fear was. Like. <laughs> It became like you became a, the, the go to. Yeah, it became not not like a detriment. It was an asset. It was like actually gay stuff is happening. Call Kate. <laughs> and I would swoop in with my cape. I'm like here to talk about the gay stuff. But so it gave me like a foothold into exploring topics and being like the go to person at ESPN for something. And that obviously was really helpful. And I think it made me better. Like it made me a much better writer once I came out as well. Help me understand that a little bit. So just like what uh, sort of connecting those two parts of yourself yeah. meant for your work. There's probably two top line reasons. One is simply that once I come out, even when I was engaging in reporting a story before, it'd be like once six o'clock hit, I'm like, you know, if I'm hanging out with someone, I'm doing a profile on them. I'd be like, see you tomorrow. And well, do you want to go out to dinner? Do you want to meet? And I'm like, nope, sorry, got to go. I mean, that's not helpful for reporting, right? To like really get to that place where you're not just sitting down with someone and interviewing them, but you feel like you're now off hours getting to know them. I wouldn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. So from a very simple logistical point of view, it allowed me to be like, yeah, let's do it. And then maybe, oh, I'll call my girlfriend or just not fear wherever the conversation would go. So that was one. To me, the more important part was when I was not fully being myself and I was like professionally closeted, I was kind of bitter about it. And I didn't have a ton of empathy for a lot of different things. And I don't think I always asked the right question because I wouldn't ask people questions that I wouldn't want to be asked. Mm -hmm. So I think even in the writing part of it, I was kind of like I had walls up and I wouldn't even allow myself to be vulnerable in my writing because the whole point of my existence at that time was to like circumvent any moment that could create vulnerability in a way that would like frighten me. And that, I think you could see that in my writing. How did it affect your life outside of writing? Like, how did it change uh, just you? I just became happier. So I was, how old was I at that point? It was probably when I was about 29 or 30, which is crazy to me. Maybe 29. That was when I really feel like I became who I am now. I started eating better. I started taking better care of myself because I wasn't emotionally just, like, closing myself off and, like, trying to put a Band-Aid on it through, like, all the random means that we do when we're human beings. So I just became a lot healthier. It is kind of striking to hear you say that because I feel like this book that you've written, it is the book of a person who is emotionally open and, like, pretty desperately trying to figure out where someone else was at when they were in, like, a really dark place. Like, the whole book seems like sort of like a empathetic pursuit. And so it's interesting to hear you say all that because I feel like there's just no way I could imagine 28-year-old Kate mm -mm. writing this book. No. I can even remember being the person, and I think I was this person up until like 27, 28, who just any sort of weakness was like revolting to me. And that person would not have even touched this story. 
or if I tried to, I would have messed it up in a lot of ways. I think working through who I am was paramount to even like seeing this story in the way that we saw it first at ESPNW when we did the magazine piece and then in this book like I really wanted to address this concept of weakness. Before we talk uh, too much more about the book can you give me like the brief uh, synopsis? Yeah so what made Maddie run is about Madison Holleran. She's a young woman who died by suicide during her freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania and she was a student athlete. She was a runner. She was from Allendale, New Jersey, and by all accounts, and these are in air quotes here, like the ideal young person in America. She possessed a lot of the qualities that I think we value in our culture. She was really smart. She was athletic. She was, you know, traditionally beautiful. She's like a young white woman in suburban America. So the book tries to explore what happened. Um, It's really difficult, maybe obviously at a bunch of points, but you spend a lot of time with her parents and gain their trust enough, grow close enough to them that they, like, give you her computer. And you have this just incredible sort of window into where she was before she died. And I wondered sort of how how you go about that relationship with her parents and, like, how you start that conversation and how do you talk to someone about wanting to tell the story of their daughter who is gone? I think if you don't have parents who have decided that they personally want to tell the story because they see some greater good coming from it, you'll get nowhere. And Madison's parents, Jim and Stacy, had, from the months after Madison died, started the Madison Holleran Foundation, felt very strongly that there were factors that impacted Madison's decision that don't need to impact the next kid. And starting from that place allowed them to even consider my initial outreach. And... I remember from that initial outreach, which would have been about three years ago now, it took a year and a half before I would ever have asked for her computer. I mean, even though I'm a journalist, I'm certainly a human being well before I'm a journalist. I would even say that I'm not that great of a journalist when it comes to just being a bulldog. Like, that's not me. It's one of the reasons why I was never good at breaking news on the Sixers beat. Because, like, as I've articulated very clearly, I'm not the person that's going to make the extra call and, like, go hang out with you until 1 a.m. But I do feel like I brought to this story and other stories, like, good observation and a willingness to really look at issues in a way that other people wouldn't have. So building trust with the family really came down to actually prioritizing being a human before a journalist. And I think in the magazine piece... We didn't have a lot of pieces that we have in this book because I didn't know them as well then. So I didn't have our computer for the magazine story. And I hadn't asked certain tough questions like, can I see the toxicology report from her death? Like, I wouldn't I didn't ask that for the magazine piece. I was like, all I can do is like be true to being like a compassionate human and understanding as best I can through the time I have. I'm not going to be like, I only have six months. And so. I'm going to, you know, put this relationship on fast forward and get three years worth of relationship information. I wasn't going to do it. Can you help me understand, though, like in a, in a kind of practical sense, like how you like literally how you have those conversations? Like how do you show up at someone's house yeah. and talk to them about their daughter who died? Yeah. So it's so I reached out to them actually through their Facebook page because they're private people. And so it's not like I can I don't have their, I didn't have their email. I didn't have their cell phone at the time. So it was in memory of Madison Holleran. I sent them a Facebook message and. A couple weeks later, it would have been Madison's sister who was running that page was like, let me talk to my mom and dad. And then she said, like, they're open to meeting you. 
And so I talked to them in advance and I just said, I'm not coming there with any agenda. We're not, I'm not reporting anything. Nothing's on the record. I just want to meet you guys. I want to share with you some of my story and why I think I would be a very good person if this is something you want to tell, to tell this story. So I went to Allendale, went to their house. We had coffee sitting around their kitchen table and we just, we had nothing to do with like recorders or anything. And I was there maybe like an hour. And then I just said like, you know, if you guys want me to come back, if you think this is something that you want to tell and you think I could be the, the right person, I'll be here whenever you want. And there had been other media, like people and some other things that wanted to do her story. But Stacy said something like, you know. Stacy is her mom. Yeah, Stacy's her mom. You know, just said something like, well, I mean, Madison just loved sports. You know, I mean, she had been a soccer star in high school, ran track in college. So she, Stacy's like, what better place than, you know, than ESPN and with someone like you who I think could understand. And so that's how it started. I still wasn't in a place where then the next time I was like, and then what happened? And then what happened? And then right. what happened? It was more like, what do you guys want to talk about? Tell me what you think. Why were you so drawn to that story? And why did you, what did you tell them about why you were the, maybe the right person to tell it? There was a lot of parts of Madison's story that I had a connection to. I had lived in Philly for three years. So when I read the headlines after Madison's death, I mean, these are places I had been, you know, I've been to Penn. I had been to the corner of the parking garage, you know, from which she jumped and so I think when you've been in those places like you feel a connection to some to a story my sister ran cross country and track at Dartmouth so Ivy League runners I had always had like this pet theory that there was a psychology there and certainly not universal but like a, like a type a perfectionism that can often drive runners let alone like Ivy League runners and then I had played college basketball at the University of Colorado I had tried to quit I had ingested an entire bottle of iron pills because I was so anxious about practice during this one stretch of my freshman year. And I knew that there was like a dark corner to her story that I could not personally relate to, but I thought the touchstones of it, I could really be there with her. And if I'm being completely honest, I, I thought all of those points would be enough to like get them to trust me because I thought it was a really good story from a journalistic perspective, right? I mean, there's also just the storyteller part of you that's like, sure, I connect to this story, but really, can I use those connections to like get in the door somewhere that I think is really interesting? I didn't set out telling her first story being like, I know a lot about mental health and I want to start a conversation. And it wasn't any of that. It was like, this is a fascinating story. And then as I moved through her story over the next few years, I started to realize the importance of it. But I didn't set out thinking it was important. I thought it was a good story. When did you realize that it could be something more than that? Actually, when the magazine piece came out and my inbox was filled with student, high school, and college-age kids' emails. And they wanted to, like, talk to me. And we should say the, the story and kind of where you focused on was, was sort of the gap between the life that Maddie was living online and uh, in reality and sort of that we all are. And that was kind of the focus of the yeah. magazine piece was like, there is this huge gap and that gap can be really dangerous. Yeah. And so the magazine piece, because, you know, we had a limited amount of space because it ran in the magazine. So we had like 3,500 words. So we really focused on that gap between her Instagram feed, which is still live right now. And you can see the perfection that is reflected in her Instagram feed. I mean, it is looks like the ideal college experience. And versus, obviously, she, she died by suicide. So there's a huge gap between her projection of reality and like what she was actually living. So we focused on that for the magazine piece. Whereas in the book, we explore that deeper. But then we also get into college counseling centers and 
the resources that they do and don't have and the influx of college kids wanting help and athletic departments and how they're behind on this issue as well as the culture on Ivy League campuses, the concept of quitting. So the book took that one magazine piece where we focus on one thing and just explored a lot of different paths. And it was sparked by those emails. Yeah, so you get this like outpouring when the magazine piece comes out and then when how do you start to think about taking a magazine piece to like a book like like when does that happen and, yeah. and how do you think about that I didn't think much about mental health leading up to the magazine piece and then a lot of the people who reached out almost wanted me to like be email therapist right and I was ill-equipped to do any of that so I had to connect with a young woman that I write about in the book Megan Armstrong who works with Brandon Marshall who's an NFL player who does who has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and speaks openly about it and does work to bring awareness to mental health so I started to then have to make connections in other realms that were tangential to the main story and then I'm spending hours trying to respond to emails like writing a book on email and then separately like screenwriters are wanting the story you know, they're like, hey, can we option this? And I think through the culmination of all of that, I was like, no, I'm the best person to turn this into something bigger because I felt like I understood it more than anyone at that point. And I felt like I had new direction on how to make it bigger mm -hmm. and make the conversation bigger. And I didn't want to turn it over to someone else and say like, oh, yeah, you you go run and do whatever you want with this. Because like I knew that I knew this story better than anyone and that I had the trust of her parents and so it was at that point about three months after the magazine where I, I talked to my agent and I was like we we should be the ones to do something more with this story Does that seem callous no, no okay. I mean I think but I, it doesn't seem callous although I do think this tension between being a human being and being a journalist and trying to do something good that will also be good for you is yeah. a, it's a tricky dance it's really tricky and I'm living it right now because it's like you put out a novel, it's like you can have a book launch party, right? And if the book's successful, you can just be happy. I don't feel any of that with this book. But then tugging at it is like my own ego, of course, like wanting the accolades that come with putting out a book and wanting the celebration that comes with it, but then quickly being like, this isn't a celebration. So I've tried to just live in the world where instead of like some sort of normal celebration, what I take heart in is like the emails from people who have read the book, who are like, thank you for this book, and really focusing on that, even though of course I wanna drift over to like, can I be on the New York Times list? Can I make money off this book? It is on the New York Times list. It is on the New York Times list. It's barely, it's holding on. I'm really trying to be in check with like what is driving me when it comes to this book, because I think it's easy to just be like, my sole goal was to start a conversation. I, I certainly want that, but I also like, I want people to think I'm a good writer, right? I want people to think this is a good book. I want I want a lot of things that have to do with me that I'm trying to put on the back burner because that sounds really awful. I'm being really real right now. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> okay. it. Yeah, I think it's hard. I don't think, and there's not some clear answer. I mean, part of the reason I was asking about how to have those conversations is, is this is true for all kinds of journalists. I mean, you're making work out of people's pain. Right. And it is often work that is ambitious and designed to propel you forward. Yeah. I have been heartened because Madison's godfather, who runs her foundation, the Madison Holleran Foundation, and one of her good friends growing up also runs it. Like, they want this book to be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. You yeah. know, it's like 
they also are like when I told them we we made the list and things were going well, they're like, let's let, let's we need to sell more copy. I mean, they're running parallel to me saying like we want the Madison Holleran Foundation to have more exposure. You know, I mean, and they're more like you know we want to help as many people as possible, and we certainly want to make sure that her legacy lives on. And it happens that that runs parallel to like me as a writer and as a journalist wanting to tell good stories. So I'm thankful that I don't have the relationship with the Hollerans where it feels like blood money. Yes, that seems like that moves it, the dance from like tricky to impossible. Right. And thankfully, like when it comes to for this book, I mean, I, we won't go there. It's fine. <laughs> what were you saying? Max is like, say it now. I, just, I won't I won't make money off of this book because I refuse to make money. I certainly hope that it like critically establishes me as like a better writer. But I, I won't make money off the book because I will give it back because I can't imagine like buying a new car based on the money made off of Madison Holleran's story. Right. Am I saying too much? No, no. I think okay. that's actually a really important thing to say. I mean, I, I don't that to me feels it's interesting, but it also feels above and beyond. Yeah. But it's also really hard. I've struggled to fall asleep over the last six months before the book came out because I'm like. Did I do everything okay? Did I did I break the rules of writing about suicide? Did I exploit Madison's story? I mean, these are I tried desperately not to do those things, but I can't answer that. I can't answer whether like I told Madison's story how she would tell it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to then go you know take a nice vacation off of it. I am at peace right now that people seem this story seems to have helped them, and also for my own ego, people seem to think I wrote it well. That is like for me all I could ask for. Because I've had moments leading up to this book where I'm like, like, did I do something wrong in this book where there will be epic blowback, like 13 Reasons Why type blowback. Like Fagan Files style blowback. <laughs> that kind of, even worse. Even worse. Well, I'm glad you're feeling good about it, Kate. Thanks, Max. Uh, here's the thing that I was wondering about as I read this book. You're on ESPN, like on the TV. On the TV. You're on the TV a lot. Mm-hmm. Taken. Like you're having hot takes. You're taking stuff. <laughs> I'm moving away from that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Why? Because I'm I'm moving more into like outside the lines E60 world. Oh, nice. Because I I probably done first take like 30 times mm-hmm. filling in for it used to be Skip and Stephen A. And I think that was like a really great learning experience. But I don't think I don't think I'm that good at it. And you were doing like around the horn. Yeah, and I love around the horn. I don't think of around the horn as hot takey. I think. I didn't. You can push back. We should not like debate the pejorative of hot takes. <laughs> I mean, like you're going. Yes. You had this other life. This is what I was trying to ask about. Yeah. You had this other life while you were writing this book, where you were going on TV and just like sounding off on the news of the day. Can oh we, yeah. Can we agree with that? That is what you're doing. Yeah, and I think the reason you're you're seeing me push back is because like that's not who I am. And it's not what I grew up wanting to do, and it's not. But I under. But I, it's fun in its own way, and so I have this weird internal battle over like even when sometimes at ESPN they'll be like, "Oh yeah, Kate's an ESPN personality," right? And I really balk at that, even though it's not not true. It's just this weird internal battle where I'm like, "No, I'm a sophisticated journalist." Yeah, well, I imagine that it might be sort of schizophrenic, like writing this really tough, really nuanced story where all of these kinds of like ethical lines are moving and and the narrative is difficult and there's pretty like extensive reporting and then like you also had to like <laughs> talk about the Jaguars <laughs> offensive line. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How'd you balance that? I I think it's in every creative medium you have the things that pay the bills that fuel your ability to do the things you're really passionate about. I mean, that exists pretty much in every creative medium. I mean, for every Marvel movie, they make Little Miss Sunshine, right, type thing. That's kind of how I view my own life. 
I love doing around the horn in its own way. I don't think I'm as good at it as, or do I want to be as good at it as I do writing and something like what made Maddie run. But I'm also aware of the fact that people really enjoy around the horn. People love debating whether or not the Patriots are going to win the AFC East. Even if I know the moment after I make a prediction, like that didn't help the world. Right. I mean, and nobody actually even holds me to my predictions. It's a very strange world where I say something on TV and like, the second after I say it, it's like it never happened. <laughs> Unless you're Stephen A and people like record everything you say all the time. I've struggled being like, is that good work? But then I know that I couldn't write long stories about, you know, gay female athletes that, you know, 8,000 people are going to read if I didn't put my heart and soul also into like doing the fun entertainment that I think makes people happy. Is the TV stuff easy? No, it's the hardest thing I do. It's crazy to me that the hardest thing I do is make a prediction about whether or not I think Conor McGregor is going to land a punch on Floyd Mayweather. But that's not where I live day in and day out. Mm -hmm. I live more in the world of like trying to read long stuff and trying to read books and like trying to get better at these other things. And so for me to try and focus on what I truly think and I try to make like interesting observations about the day to day sports, I end up reading hours. Like I wake up really early to do around the horn. I wake up four hours before the conference call and I read probably 10 to 12 articles about every single topic to say 20 seconds on it and I get really nervous about it like anybody who does something where they're like this isn't my world that I live in every day like I could go talk about the Madison Holleran book on any platform and not feel that nervous because I know it inside it out I know for a fact I don't know the offensive line of the Buffalo Bills inside and out I learned two names and if Tony Rianni asks a follow-up question I won't know what to say <laughs> and I know that and so that's anxiety causing. Yeah. So it's like this kind of like everyday pop quiz. Yep. Can I ask you one more question about the future and then I will really let you go? Yeah. So you came out professionally and then like you were writing about gay athletes for a while. Mm -hmm. And now you've written this book about mental health, which I think is also a really under discussed, under reported aspect of sports. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's changing. And I wonder whether that's going to be a focus for you, whether you think there is more to do on mental health in sports. Yeah, I think the book on Madison pinpoints a lot of issues. If we're looking just in the sports world, like athletic departments right now over the last three months are starting to realize like this is their next frontier that they have to understand. In the same way that I think three to five years ago, athletic departments were like, we need to have a panel on gay issues. Now I think it's like we need to do better with our student athletes. And so I think that's going to be a topic of conversation over the next couple of years. So it does seem to have become my beat right now and perhaps will be for the next year or two. And I welcome that because I think there's a lot of athletes who have not been able to talk about things that they want to talk about. And I think that they will start to be able to over the next few years. Well, thank you for talking about all of this with me. Thanks, Max. Thanks for asking good questions. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Courtney Harrell, and our sponsors were HelloFresh and the fine people at MailChimp. Come to the uh, Decatur Book Festival. Evan and I will be there in Atlanta. And uh, on your way, listen to some episodes of Stoner, Aaron's new podcast. You can find it wherever you are listening to this show. We'll see you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.